0: This is Tennessee Talks with United States Congressman Tim Burchett.
1: Hello, I'm Congressman Tim Burchett, and welcome back to another episode of Tennessee Talks. Today I'm joined by my buddy Sean Ryan. He's a former Navy SEAL and CIA contractor. When you say contractor, that doesn't mean like you do siding or anything like that, right? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Don't leave me hanging, man. Yeah. Yeah. Kill off my whole viewership there. He's your founder of Vigilance Elite and the host of The Sean Ryan Show. Sean works on assisting and coaching veterans on how to use their skill sets when they transition back into the life of a civilian and used his, used his show to raise over $1 million to support those efforts. I can't imagine folks coming back. And I remember Daddy, when he came back from the Pacific, a lot of the stuff was just, you know, they were wanting them to all put on a suit and get back to work. and it. IT JUST WASN'T HAPPENING. IT'S NOT THAT EASY. (laughs) NOT THAT EASY. NO, SIR. SEAN IS ALSO A MEMBER OF THE VETERAN ADVOCACY SERVICES, WHICH IS A GROUP THAT HELPS MEMBERS OF THE ARMED FORCES NAVIGATE THE COMPLICATED VETERAN'S AFFAIRS BENEFITS SYSTEM. AND SEAN, I WANT TO THANK YOU AGAIN FOR JOINING ME ON TENNESSEE TALKS. IT'S GREAT TO HAVE YOU, BROTHER. Um, MY
0: PLEASURE. Tell us a little bit about the Vigilance Elite and its mission. So, Vigilance Elite actually started as a tactical training company. So, basically, what I was doing was just I was training law enforcement and then um, civilians on on. Well, it started in law enforcement. Then I branched out into civilians, and it was just you know we've seen this. We've just seen crime on the rise, right, you know, every year since I don't know how long, and um, and as is these active shooters kept, you know, it's happening more and more frequently, and so I wanted to give civilians a place to learn how to protect themselves, you know, learning just basic stuff. Uh, not trying to jump into Baghdad with all their equipment and sniper rifles and everything. Just it was for the the guy that wants to protect his family, family, and church. Right know, on, and, and that's yep. how it started.
1: Okay, well, it, you know, you hear that a lot. one lot of the tough guys, and I, you know, I around folks that you know go to gun shows and stuff and and uh i and hear folks talking and you know I'd, I'd, i could remember being with my dad and some guy talking about something and and dad would just kind of look at me and just kind of go no that, yep, that ain't the way it goes down
0: <laughs> <laughs> ain't the way it goes down there are a lot of uh there are a lot of talkers in that in that uh genre yeah you I'd know say
1: so. um, well, can you tell us a little bit about your time serving in the CIA? I, and I, I'm pretty sure I was in the midst of some CIA when I was uh, I was uh, in a, uh, a meeting dealing with UFOs, and I had um, Matt Gates with me, and we asked some pretty tough questions. And the, and, the um, and one of the pilots started answering, and it was apparently made the CIA very nervous. And I leaned over to Matt, and I go. I think those spooks are getting a little nervous over in the corner because that's what you, you know. And because these guys were like, and I knew that they were like wanting to shut the guy, and <laughs> they couldn't. But and I suspect
0: your what you did with um, serving in the CIA would have been a little different than wearing a suit. Very different than wearing a suit. Uh, so when I got in uh, to the agency, it was actually for kind of a protective type um, role. So basically, when I joined, or. Um, I joined when I got in there basically what they had was you know CIA we had a long period of time in the US where there was no war you know right. we just had, we had a couple things we had the Escobar thing Noriega yeah. Somalia Desert Storm but those weren't really like long Drama. drawn out yeah. conflicts and so what what happened after 9/11 was you had CIA personnel going to war zones where all they're used to is Cold War tactics from, you know, Russia, Cuba, you know, conflicts like that that weren't really kinetic. And so you had overconfident, I I don't want to bust on them, but basically what it was was you'd have overconfident CIA operatives who had only operated in a Cold War environment show up in a wartime environment and they, they... no fault of their own, they're, they're still running Cold War tactics, you know, and so basically what have is, and Cold War tactics don't work in a war zone environment, and so they had to bring in guys like me who could assist these case officers who are, who are digging around for intelligence and, and, and trying to recruit assets for information, uh, and they would pair them up with somebody like me. You know, and so there is no actual Jason Bourne out there. Jason Bourne in reality is like two people. It's a CIA case officer and a guy like me. And you put those together and the case officer interviews, recruits, briefs, debriefs, uh, sucks information out of assets. And then you have the guy like me who develops all the tradecraft. How do we get there? you know, um, how do we go undetected? How do we detect surveillance? How do, do we need to pull our own surveillance? And so you combine those things and and that's that's the product that you get. All right, Wow. Well, what about being a SEAL? Um,
1: what about that to you is the most rewarding and what kind of things have, have you kept, like um, not physical things, but the um, lessons, I guess, that you learned? I could tell you that, but it'd have to be in a skiff. <laughs> no, <laughs> okay. I'm just yeah. kidding. I've heard that many um, times. And I was like, well, okay.
0: Um, the most rewarding thing being in the SEAL teams um, one, I did a pretty short stint there. My career at CIA was longer. But, um, but um, I think the most rewarding thing that I got <laughs> out of the SEAL teams was you know, when it took me a while to get to war uh, in the SEAL teams. And when, when I did go, the most action I saw was in Iraq and Baghdad. And basically what we were doing was we were, at, the, at that time, it was around 2005, 2006 time frame, a lot of conventional forces were getting blown up. So like the, the infantry guys or the logistic guys, um, they were getting targeted by Insurgents and, and they were hitting them on the roads, blowing right. their vehicles up, killing them. And so one thing that we got tasked with, because there was all these elections going on at that time, was they wanted to bring us in to these conventional units uh, to set up a target package, teach the conventional unit, how to set up a target package, how to run sniper operations, how to identify threats. And so we would we would take them in and run them through everything, setting up the target package, training them how to be snipers, uh, training them how to what to look for, all the counter surveillance, surveillance, all these type things. And then we would bring them on the mission where they were getting blown up, where their unit was getting blown up, and and we would kill the threat. AND SO THEN WE WOULD TAKE THEM UP, TAKE THEM OUT AGAIN ON on FOLLOW-UP OPERATIONS. USUALLY WE GO OUT ONE OR TWO MORE TIMES JUST TO MAKE SURE THAT WE HAD IDENTIFIED AND ELIMINATED THAT PARTICULAR THREAT. ONCE WE KILLED THOSE BAD GUYS, WE WOULD MOVE ON TO THE NEXT CONVENTIONAL UNIT. AND SO BASICALLY... DID YOU SEE see LESS FATALITIES ON OUR PART AFTER THAT? OH, YEAH. IN FACT, AFTERWARDS, WHERE I'M GOING WITH THIS IS AFTER THAT DEPLOYMENT, I actually ran into the first team that we trained up and and they had said that I can't remember how many more guys, uh, bad guys they had killed, but they had not taken one more casualty. They hadn't been blown up one more time and they had and their unit had bought them all new equipment. And, um and kind of release the reins to let these guys do their jobs and and it they had a that had to be the most rewarding thing all it those was lives you saved because we saved lives and then we trained guys how to do it to save more lives and that carried on remember my dad talked about one time uh, he was on Peleliu. they were um,
1: the Japanese were they they had this um it was a semi-automatic cannon basically it was it was if I'm sure technology now it's just light years ahead, but they rolled this thing out and they started shooting, and they're on the, uh, the marines on the beach, and it turned out when Dad was there, the marines on the beach were on stretchers, oh, man. and like a hundred of them, and they asked for a volunteer, and and it's not like as you know, it's not like in the movies, not everybody had a Thompson submachine gun, so generally the volunteer was him and his buddy Red, and. um and they got up there and and they got the guy, but I always, you know, and I talked about it at daddy's funeral. I said, you know, I, I thought those hundred people that lived because my daddy got up there and risked his dadgum life, um, you know, I always wondered what what, what became of those people because yeah. they all just went out all over the country and they rebuilt the country after the war. I mean, you know, it, it came, maybe not rebuilt it, but you know what I mean. And I always, and I, when you were telling that story, I was thinking, man, all those lives you saved because you told them how to how to do it is uh that's pretty cool um, thank you man um i know you're big on helping veterans transition to c- civilian life and um and i know you probably had a tough time during that transition I, you know after the war daddy told me you know he bought an indian motorcycle and he just literally just went out and raised hell rode around and did his thing and and you know he talked to me about a guy come off the front line one time this kid and a lot of times people lie about their age and he was he was shook up, he called it shell shock. Now it'd be just PTSD. It was just out of his mind and not, no physical, but just, and they gave him a shot of morphine, stuck him on the boat, and sent him home. That's probably all the care they gave the guy. Yeah. You know, and he was probably an abusive drunk the rest of his very short life. As a matter of fact, one of the guys that raised the flag on Mount Suribachi drank himself to death. And we do a very poor job of that in our VA, and there's good people at work in the VA, but. Administratively, we've got to make some big changes at some point. Um, you know, how have you, um, how was your transition?
0: Uh, it was, it was really tough. Uh, just being 100% open with you. A, a lot of drug use, a lot of alcohol abuse. Destroyed every relationship that I had within my family, all of my friends, and uh, it got to be, really lonely for a very very long time and um well I'll let you. that's that's uh i can keep it as vague or going and, and uh I'll go in a little more depth if it's okay if you want to i would because my people
1: a lot of my folks are veterans and they'd already be good for them to hear this and they probably have family members that are veterans and it'll help them understand a little bit if that's all right unless you don't want to
0: no i don't mind i mean um yeah. it. I had gotten out. I had zero. I was disgusted with um, the country um, because I'd fought over there and I just came home and, and uh, didn't like the conversations that were being had. I didn't like the fact that the government was persecuting uh, my friends for killing bad guys like Eddie Gallagher. I felt yep. a lot of resentment. Uh, And then I was dealing with all of my own trauma at the exact same time. And so I actually moved to, I just left. I said, you know, I don't want to live here anymore. I moved to Medellin, Colombia. And um, did a lot of things I shouldn't be doing down there. uh, But I just wanted to get away. It was a lot of, like I said, a lot of drug abuse, a lot of booze, a lot of womanizing, a lot of that kind of stuff. GOT BACK, uh, DECIDED IT WAS TIME TO COME HOME AND CLEAN UP. AND um, IT WASN'T THAT EASY CLEANING UP. NO, I'D SAY NOT. Uh, SUICIDE ATTEMPTS. COULDN'T, I COULD NOT. THERE'S A COUPLE OF THINGS THAT YOU HAVE TO, FOR VETERANS, uh, WITHOUT GOING TOO IN-DEPTH, BECAUSE WE'LL BE HERE FOR HOURS. SURE. uh, IF WE GO TO THAT DARK PLACE. BUT I WOULD LIKE TO GIVE SOME ADVICE TO VETERANS, AND ONE IS a lot of us struggle with survivor guilt, whether it was whether you were right beside your buddy when he was killed, yeah, daddy, or you were home when he was killed. But one thing that you have to remember, and we we get caught up in these endless cycles of why did why was it my friend? Why wouldn't why wasn't it me? Why was it my friend? Why wasn't it somebody else? You know, instead of and we we get into these uh, we just. That cycle can continue forever if you let it. But you have to remember you know, one, whoever was beside you or whoever died that was in war that you think maybe should have been you and not them, that person, all the people that I worked with that died, none of those men would have died, would have been, if you would have given them the opportunity before that specific operation that they were killed on, and you said, hey, I'm going to give you a choice. You can go home, be with your family, with your friends, be out doing anything else that you want to do, or you can be on this operation. Every single person that I served with, there is no other place at that specific moment in time that they would have rather have been than fighting for this country alongside their brothers. And so with that being said, you have to live your life like you think they would want you to live? If you think your buddy that died in combat, you know, is looking down and likes seeing you suffer because they're not here anymore, I would say you're you're making a horrible uh, yeah. uh, mistake I, by living that way.
1: I was um, the, a group wanted to honor my father, World War II veteran, combat Marine Corps, because most everybody's dead. There's not many World War II folks left, yeah, and. Um, he was in his 80s, and it was an event at a school, and they were honoring him. And one of the, the ROTC guys were there that Dad had always helped at the university and stuff. Dad had his red coat on, his Marine Corps, uh, and he looked pretty sharp. I've still got that coat. And um, and they and they said and they, it was a surprise, and it was really just honoring my daddy and survivor's guilt. And I remember it, it, they said, and we're here. To, we're not here for this. We're here to honor. Dean Charles Burchett and, and, and asked him to come up and daddy got, I'd never, I've never seen my dad cry in my entire life. Wow. He got up and started crying. And I said, I looked across at the guy who was in charge of, of, uh, ROTC. And I was like, Phew. and I went up there and I said, what daddy wants to, y'all to know was he's not a hero. All his buddies he left over there were the heroes. Cause I'd heard him say that a thousand times. Yep. And I walked off and we walked out and I was holding his hand and, uh, um, and I said, and he said, buddy, he said, I need to explain. I said, daddy, you don't explain nothing to me? Nothing. Because I'd read about where he'd been and how rough it was. And and that, that survivor's guilt is a real issue. Yeah. Is, and he was 80 years old, and, you know, and it and it hit him right then. Yep. And so um, it's the real
0: deal. I get it. I get it. Um, you have to live how you think those men would want you to live, and they sure as hell wouldn't want you, I mean, they can't live anymore. You know what I mean? They don't want you living in sorrow and and drowning yourself in the bottom of a bottle every night. They don't. And the number two thing, I think, that really would help veterans today is don't be scared to reinvent yourself. You're never, you're not going to go back to war. You're not going to relive those times. Even if you could relive those times, they aren't going to be the same as they were. It won't be how you remembered it. And so. You're probably not physically able. No. You know, it'd beat you to death. But you have to be able to set that war bag down and move on and figure out, and it takes time. You have to figure out what do you like doing now? What's the new impact that you want to make on the world? You know, what makes you happy? And. and start to explore those things and then reinvent yourself and and it won't be so hard to leave that era of your life behind Well, let
1: me go into this next question because it deals with that you and i we both share a passion for improving mental health services especially for our veterans Um, what do you think are the best ways to improve our mental health care system
0: got it a THAT WOULD PROBABLY BE A GOOD THING. FOR VETERANS OR FOR the, JUST everyone. LET'S JUST TALK VETERANS. JUST VETERANS. I THINK THE VA NEEDS TO BE ABOLISHED. AND I THINK THAT um, SOME TYPE OF SELF-CARE ALLOWANCE WOULD BE A LOT MORE HELPFUL THAN FORCING PEOPLE TO GO INTO A VA WHERE yeah. THEY HAVE, AND I'LL PROBABLY GET SOME FLACK FOR SAYING THIS, BUT yeah. LET'S BE HONEST Not HERE, permitted. GOVERNMENT POSITIONS, usually don't have very good accountability, which creates piss-poor service. What I think they ought to do is, um, is you all have what's
1: called, what's that, DD-214 mm-hmm. or whatever. You carry that around. You ought to be able to go to any physician, any medical care facility in the country and be reimbursed through the VA. And that's all the VA could, if the VA's got to exist, it ought to be just an insurance company. Yep. Because it's it, it's just, you know, they're built in areas where they're, they're, Politically, you know, it's a, it's a political coup to get a VA hospital in your area. It's all, and it just it shouldn't be that. Should be poli- it should be it should be
0: driven by a population. AND It's not. I've had more friends die from drug overdoses than I have in combat, and I was yeah in war zones for fourteen years wow. and worked at the <laughs> at the highest level uh, that you can work at as a as a is a war fighter. You know and UM, and a lot of that stems from being lenient with or, or pushing prescriptions from the VA. Yeah, it's easier to put up. That's mental health is, is a lot of that. A lot of, a lot of the
1: abuse in that is is done through that.
0: It's so bad there that I won't. I'm a hundred percent. I have a hundred percent disability through the VA, which means free health care. Yeah, free. I mean, it's not free. I paid the. Yeah. Paid a heavy price for that, but. I WILL NOT EVEN STEP FOOT INTO A VA AND I COVER ALL MY OWN MEDICAL EXPENSES AND, and PURCHASE MY OWN INSURANCE BECAUSE THAT'S HOW MUCH DISTRUST I HAVE IN THAT yeah. ORGANIZATION. YEAH. IT'S NOT FREE. MY LITTLE GIRL GOT BANGED UP AND HER BIOLOGICAL
1: FATHER WAS A um, NAVY MASTER CHIEF ON THE SUB. WE TALKED ABOUT THAT BEFORE AND, and I REMEMBER uh, SOME PEOPLE ON THE INTERNET WERE ATTACKING HER AND ME. WELL, SHE'S GOT FREE HEALTH CARE somebody paid a big price for that health care. It it's wasn't there. me, it was, it was her biological father, and man, that just that flew all over me. And I, I had to hide that tweet from her mama because that would have been, she'd, yep. been <laughs> she'd been loading up the truck and heading over. But I'm gonna run out of time. The Pentagon, and you know, I've called them war pimps, and I know that makes people
0: unhappy, but um, I feel like they can be too political at times. Do you think they can? Oh, yeah. I THINK THEY'RE BEING WAY TOO POLITICAL RIGHT NOW WITH THE WOKE AGENDA THAT THEY'RE PUSHING DOWN EVERYBODY'S THROAT. YOU ANSWERED MY NEXT QUESTION, THEN. Um, AND THIS IS THE FINAL ONE. THIS IS THE ONE
1: I ALWAYS HATE. AND IF YOU DON'T GIVE A GOOD ANSWER, I'LL I'll EDIT YOU OUT. BUT um, YOU GET TO ASK ME ANYTHING YOU WANT. I GET TO ASK YOU ANYTHING YOU WANT? YEAH. ANYTHING
0: I WANT? ANYTHING YOU WANT. NOT WHAT I WANT. WHAT YOU WANT. WAY TO PUT ME ON THE SPOT HERE. WHO WOULD YOU LIKE TO SEE THE NEXT PRESIDENT OF THE UNITED STATES BE? You. Good answer. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> Who? It's all fair. Take your shot. Who do you think the Democrats are going to prop up in place of Biden? I think
1: it's going to be the governor of California. He um, he um, recently was handed a bill, he could have vetoed it, I believe he he let it go into law that allows for um, the Hollywood crowd that's on strike to uh, get benefits. And benefits are for people that lose their job, not voluntarily. I mean, that's just the way it's set up. And so I think Hollywood will be helping him um, redo their agenda, redo his history. Great. And that's who I think it'll be. I think he's going to be the guy for them i don't know that it'll go anywhere i don't know where it's going is i I'm, i was asked when i came off the steps of the capitol one time who are you voting for for president i said now who are you pushing for president i said me and they said you're running for president and they all got their pens. i said hey no i ain't running for president i said but i'm on the ballot and i said hey I, I, I keep in my own lane brother yeah and they all they all laughed and said that was a good idea but anyway sean i want to thank you brother it's been a pleasure and I'm glad you're in our state. I wish I could get you over to East Tennessee,
0: brother. Hugh, your family, a lot of room over there. Well, hey, if this county keeps going the way it is, I'll be over there before too long. All right. A lot of freedom-loving folks, too. So they love you, brother.
1: Well, anyway, I'm Congressman Tim Burchett. and I want to thank everybody for listening to another episode of Tennessee Talks. Thank you all for sending me here. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Thanks for brother. listening to this episode of Tennessee Talks. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Keep up with Congressman Burchett by following Rep. Tim Burchett on Twitter and Instagram and Congressman Tim Burchett on Facebook and YouTube.